0: If you're new here, welcome. We're traveling through the book of Esther. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that one of the major themes we've been talking about is that we serve a sovereign God. He is in complete control and he works all things together for the good of those who love him. And I don't know about you, but that has brought me much peace in the world in which we live. That being said, while I would love to stand up here as one of your pastors and say that that truth has brought me to a place in my life where I never worry, I never fret, I never get stressed out or, or angry in light of events, that would be a lie. Example. Maybe you'll relate to this. A couple weeks ago, we shared how thankful we are. Jaden was okay after his car accident. That was the main thing, and so was the other driver. But now, in the aftermath, we're dealing with the insurance companies. And if you've ever been there, you know how fun that is. And we are working on some more forms one evening this week. And as we were working on them, I began to get stressed out. I began to fret and... I became a class A grump in our home for that evening for two or three hours. And I'm a man, I, I know Frank's talking about leadership in the home, and I believe part of a Christian man's responsibility in his home is to set a godly atmosphere. I was not doing that that evening. And I confessed to my family after those couple hours I'm sorry, you know. I think about, I've been preaching about God's sovereignty. I've been preaching about trusting him. And here I am fretting and and getting grumpy. I also think about the fact that an insurance claim is small in light of what you may be facing this week. Just a couple examples of folks I met with this week. Things they're dealing with. I had lunch with a guy who who told me I have a spot on my lung. As soon as we're done eating, I'm going to head to the doctor. I know another family who, who watched a loved one uh, go into hospice uh, late this last week. and you have your own own trials that come your way. But God reaches out to His children in the midst of those, if we will listen. That night, after fretting and, and worrying and becoming grumpy, I woke up and, and I grabbed an old book. Maybe you've read it before? It's called Streams in the Desert, devotional written by Mrs. Charles Cowman. And she wrote that during six years of life when her and her husband were on mission in Japan and China. And those six years in particular, she was caring for her dying husband. So if you're like me, your ears perk up when you hear words from someone like that because you relate to them. They're not writing from some ivory tower insulated from the troubles of this world. They're going through it. And so what they have to say has more weight. Chap- we're Chapter 7. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: That's okay, buddy. It happened to me up here once. My phone said, I don't understand. And I thought, maybe there's others out there, too. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> but I opened up to September 28th, which was that day's devotional. And the verse on was John 16, 33, where Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. And she went on to share the story of a man named Paganini. Anybody know the story of Paganini? I did not either until this week. Paganini was a a great violinist. So great that some authors say he could hit 12 notes a second. That's almost hard to imagine. And he had a concert one night, went to his case, grabbed a violin, stepped out on the stage. And as he stepped out in front of everyone, he looked at the violin and he realized it was not his grade A top-notch violin that he treasured so much. It was old and worn down and broken down. And he said, just a moment, walked behind stage and looked at his violin case to see if his good one was there and it was gone. Evidently, it had been stolen and he had a, a choice to make. Do I go on with the, the show or, or not? And, and in his own words, he decided to go out there and show that crowd that music is not in the instrument. Music comes from the soul. And history tells us he put on such a great show that night that the applause just lifted the roof off the place. And I love where Mrs. Charles Kalman took this as far as application. She said, it is your mission tested and tried one, to walk out on the stage of this world and reveal to all earth and heaven that the music is not in conditions, not in the things, not in externals, but the music of life is in your own soul. And going back to the verse she shared, the risen Christ who lives within his children. I needed that that night. Maybe you needed that this morning. I also know it's at moments in life, trials like that, where maybe we say in our head, I believe God is sovereign. I believe that, but I'm struggling right now. And we relate with the father and the gospel of the demoniac boy. I believe Jesus. Help my unbelief. Let's bring that to where we're at in the book of Esther. And and I want to drive home one main idea today. At one main idea is that whatever you find yourself walking through, I want to encourage you to identify yourself by faith with the victor. Because in the end, all things will be made right. Little review from, from last week. You remember throughout the book, there was this decree from, from Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to kill every Jew. In the Persian Empire and Queen Esther the Jew finally reached out to the king to plead for her people she didn't do it the first time she didn't do it the second time when she had a first feast and she asked for a second feast she may not have known why but but that night was a sleepless night between the feasts for the the king of the Persian Empire and he had read to him that night about Mordecai the Jew how he had saved his life And as Haman came in, who had built a 75-foot pole to impale Mordecai the Jew on, because he was angry at him, the king had a question for evil Haman. What should I do for the man I want to honor? Haman thought it was about him and had this great plan to lead the man through the city, royal clothes, royal horse, and the king said, do that to Mordecai the Jew. And so Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had to do that to the man he hated so much. Haman's humiliation had begun. but It was about to get worse. I want to invite you to chapter 7 of Esther. Esther 7 verse 1. I want to walk you through five eyes that I see in this chapter. The first one is the king's generous invitation to Esther. Verse 1. The king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day... As they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And we think about what a wonderful, open-ended invitation. What a gracious heart from this pagan Persian king. Right? Not only did she get to see him, but hey, whatever you want, my queen. We think again of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. What's that mean? If a ruler makes a decision in line with God's moral will, God directed his heart. If he makes a decision that's not in line with God's moral will, God is still directing and for whatever reason in his sovereignty has allowed him to make that choice. Either way, our God is in control. So what would Esther do with this generous invitation? I want to talk about the queen's identification with her people, the Jews, because up till now, I do not believe King Xerxes knew that Esther was one of the Jews. She had kept that hidden at various points throughout the book. Verse 3, listen. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold. I and my people... To be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Do you, do you see her over and over saying, I am one of them? Do you understand the faith that that took to identify herself with God's people in that moment? Not only was it the faith to get in the king's presence, but now to say, I am one of these people that have been decreed to death with your permission. Would you please spare our lives? What faith? What potential sacrifice? Now I want to look at Haman's indictment. Then King Ahasuerus, another name for Xerxes, said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And he had good reason to be terrified. I want you to see the king's indignation starting in verse 7. The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. He, he storms out of there maybe red faced in anger and some have wondered why did he walk out in the palace garden? Well, maybe you've done that at a moment of great stress or anger. I'm gonna go take a walk. Some speculate that maybe he had to ponder some difficulties with this. How do I punish Haman for a decree that, that I signed off on? There were some complexities here. Right now that he realized his queen Esther was one of them, the situation was difficult. So he goes out to the garden, but Haman, not wanting to be anywhere near that wrath and realizing that King Xerxes was a man earlier in the book, often controlled by the ideas of others, decides to use queen Esther to his favor. Haman stayed to beg for his life, From Queen Esther. Maybe he could get her to beg Xerxes for his life. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. I want you to listen to this. This as here is very important. He returned as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now, we need to know a little bit about Persian history and culture to fully understand what's going on here. Historians tell us that uh, another man was never to be alone with a woman in the king's harem. They're likely not alone here. We'll read there are servants involved in this story. But even when there are other people around, another man was never to be within seven steps of a woman in the king's harem. Here is Haman as the king walks back in on the couch where Esther is. Some Jews have a tradition that the angel Gabriel gave him a good push (laughs) onto the couch. That's not what we read in the Bible, but we certainly know God was in control in this moment. If King Xerxes was struggling to find a way to punish Haman, for something he had signed off on, he now had a completely different reason. Look how the king interprets what happened. The king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Now, we know Haman's intentions were to beg for his life, but the king had his own ideas about what was happening there. And that led to Haman's ironic impalement on a pole that he had built. Look at the end of verse 8. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. This man with such high aspirations in the Persian kingdom was now a criminal. Verse 9, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai whose word saved the king. That's what Xerxes had just learned the night before. Those gallows that Haman built for him, they're standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits, 75 feet high. And the king said, hang him on that. Verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath Of the king abated. There's still this decree for months later to slaughter the Jews to deal with, but the enemy of the Jews behind the decree is dead. Short chapter, right? But I think there's a couple takeaways as I look at this for us walking in this world today. I look at Haman's impalement. On a stake that he had built. And I believe that it's a microcosm of the history of the universe. It gives us hope that in the end, all will be made right. We struggle with that because we don't see the whole picture. We, we live moment by moment. And I was talking with a guy about that this week, how... He was going through some stuff and he didn't understand how it all worked. And I said, I I get that too. I don't always understand God's wisdom in a situation. He said, Think of Job, how many questions Job must have had along the way. And I said, I get it. I've been there. But I think part of our struggle is this we are finite, but God is infinite. He is eternal. And how many of us think a good movie critic would judge a movie after watching only one scene of it? No, oh, that'd be foolish, right? Uh, a good movie critic needs to see the whole movie. Our struggle is we don't get to see the whole movie right now. What, where does that lead us as children of God? It leads us to the necessity of faith in a sovereign God. Who does see the whole movie. This plays out in a couple ways in our lives. Maybe you look around the world and you see the wicked. People who have no regard for God. And you watch them. You watch them prosper. You watch them thrive. You watch them rise to positions of power. And sometimes you wonder, God, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Yes, he sees what we see. And Haman is an example of the eventual outcome for a, who, all who die in their wicked state. Listen to Psalm seven fourteen. Think about Haman. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull, his violence descends. Perhaps not in the timing we would like, but in God's perfect timing. And there is both warning and comfort in this truth. The warning is if you read this story of Esther and you find yourself lining up with Haman in your life, you're walking the path of pride, of resisting God and his word and his people. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to repent. Some scholars even believe that is why God did not destroy Haman instantly in his sleep. You remember along the way he had chances to stop, especially when his family said, Hey, if you continue to oppose Mordecai, this will not go well for you. We know God's heart is for the wicked to repent. We know that from Ezekiel. It says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But rather that they turn from their wicked ways and live. Oh, if he had listened to his family and said, I'm wrong. I need to repent. I need to change course. If, If you line yourself up with Haman today, repent. Come to the cross. Come to the cross of Jesus where he died for your sins. Trust in him. Trust in him. There's warning. but There's also comfort in this for the believer wondering. Wondering, will will all be made right? The answer is yes. I believe along with many that Haman being hanged or impaled on a pole that he built foreshadows the fact that one day Satan would be defeated at a cross that he so longed for Jesus to hang on. I believe it points us to the truth of the ultimate spiritual battle between God and Satan. As I pondered this this week, I pulled out an old book from one of our pastors in Chicago, Erwin Lutzer. He wrote a book that R.C. Sproul said was the best book on the enemy, Satan, that he had ever read. It was called The Serpent of Paradise. And the subtitle was How Satan's Rebellion Serves God's purposes And you just read the subtitle and think about How frustrating that must be For Satan An enemy who hates God Who wanted to be like God To receive the worship and was cast Out of heaven Martin Luther The great reformer Shared a quote about the devil That we need to remember Even the devil Is God's devil What does that mean? Does that mean that God is the author of evil or he approves morally of the things that Satan does? Absolutely not. But it means God is in absolute control. Satan could do nothing without God's allowing it. And we think about the defeat of Satan. As Lutzer travels through his book, he talks about some ways that that we hold on to. You think about the eternal defeat of Satan. If you're like me, we just came through Rosh Hashanah on September 25th. It's a Jewish feast where the shofar, the trumpet is sound, sounded. If you're like me, you're looking forward to the sound of that trump one day where, where God's people will be delivered from this darkness and chaos and set in motion events that will lead to Revelation 20, verse 10, the eternal defeat of Satan, the devil. Who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulphur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And I cannot read that without thinking of the off-quoted words by my dad. My dad and mom are here this morning, and and you may have heard it somewhere else. A believer, when, when Satan comes and he reminds you of your past. Reminded of his future. We look forward to the eternal defeat of Satan in the lake of fire. It's coming. But many of us know as well the spiritual defeat that took place at the cross. I want you to think about this theologically for a minute. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. Paul writes to that church and he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jump down to verse seven. He says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this wisdom. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So who are these rulers that, would not have crucified the Lord of glory if they understood the wisdom of God. Some believe they're human rulers. I believe with others that he's speaking of spiritual rulers, Satan himself. If he had understood what Colossians 2:15 says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, he certainly would not have worked so hard toward the cross. Think about how it backfired on the enemy. John 14, Jesus talks about it one time with his guys before he goes to the cross. Verse 30, he says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. That's Satan. Jesus says he has no claim on me, but I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. Is that what Satan wanted at the cross? That the world would know Jesus loves the Father? Absolutely not. What about this one? John 12, 31. Again, looking at the cross, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, Satan, be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That's the last thing Satan wanted. He wanted to worship. He wanted to draw people to himself. But Jesus said, I will draw people to myself. Regarding his very life, John 10, 18, Jesus said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So I think about those two defeats, the eternal defeat and the spiritual defeat, but still I know we look at our lives, we look at our world, and maybe you're thinking, what about now? Because I look around and sometimes if I'm honest, I look at the world, I see Satan winning this battle right now, or I see Satan winning this battle right now, and I, I think about that, and my mind goes to football. Our, our house, we root for two different teams, on the college level, we root for the Buckeyes. One week, the Buckeyes had 77 points. These, these first few weeks of the season are kind of like if you're a Star Wars fan. You remember the Rancor underneath Jabba the Hutt? It's like the Buckeyes are the Rancor and the other teams are the, the guy, poor guys that get thrown in, fed to the Rancor. It gets tougher later on. Last year, your Utes gave us a, a run in the playoffs. The Browns are a different story. That's our other team. Every game is a nail-biter with the Cleveland Browns. And and My son was talking about how interesting it is when you go to ESPN and you know how they have those probabilities of who will win a game and they graph it. Like the Buckeyes, after the first quarter when it's like 21 to nothing, that line is just pretty straight throughout the whole game, like 99.9% chance. The Browns' probability line is a lot different. You look at that thing, and And even there's no guarantee when there's 20 seconds left. <laughs> that, that line's up and down. And that's how we look around the world, and we see this battle won or this battle lost, and, and we see this up and down. And what we need to understand by faith is that even when God allows Satan to have a victory here or there, that the ultimate victory is still 100% secured. It's been well said the believer does not fight for victory. We fight from victory. We must never imagine as we see the up and down with our eyes that somehow Satan is on a level with God. He is a created being. We serve a Savior who is far above all rule and authority and power. But what do we do sometimes? We, we elevate Satan in our minds. We, we don't want to ignore him. We want to fight in the strength of the Lord and put on his armor, but we don't want to over-elevate him in our minds either. But we do this sometimes. I like the way Gerald McGraw said in an article called, Is Your Devil Too Big? He said, sometimes you can even take a little quarter, and if you lift it up just right in front of your eye, you can block out the sun. (laughs) That quarter is nothing compared to the glory and fire and power of the sun. And he said, we can do the same thing with the devil if we're not careful. We will not properly understand the devil, as Erwin Lutzer put it, until we properly understand our sovereign, almighty God. But you know that throughout the Bible, ever since in Genesis 3, God told the serpent that one of Eve's descendants will crush your head. He has been working to oppose God's plan over and over. But I love where Erwin Lutzer closes on this topic. Listen to this. He says, Satan's delusions feed on the appearance of victory. Abel was dead, but then there was Seth. The earth was corrupted, but there was Noah. The nations turned to paganism, but then there was Abraham. Almost all of the seed was massacred, but Joash was safe in a closet. Maybe some of you are saying, I don't know about that one. Read this afternoon in 2 Chronicles 22. It had been predicted that the Messiah would come through David's line. There was a wicked woman named Athaliah that wanted to reign, and she decided to kill every last one of David's descendants. There was one young boy named Joash, who his aunt grabbed him, probably just wanting to keep him safe, probably having little idea of the cosmic significance of this in God's plan, but she took him and hid him, along with her husband, the priest, and he grew up to be the next king, the next descendant of David. Humanly speaking, it hinged on one descendant of David, but in God's plan, it was never in question. He goes on, the male children of Bethlehem are massacred, but Christ escapes to Egypt. Satan is as far from victory when he appears to have it in hand as he will be when he's writhing in the lake of fire. Amen. 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 So I think about how this story points us to the ultimate resolution of the battle between good and evil. I think there's one other application for us. I think about Esther's identification, that step of faith that she took with her people in their time of need. What a step of faith. And I think for believers who are on this planet in 2022 for such a time as this, we have to ask ourselves the same questions as we look at the moral battles raging in our world. Are we willing to identify And stand up for those in need. And one place I see this battle raging is the topic of abortion. The topic of abortion in our country. Will we stand with the lives of the innocent in the womb? Even if our culture begins to head down a path where hostility toward pro-life people grows hotter. And hotter Will we stand with those babies? I think about this, and I think about how there's a battle between absolute truth and relativism. Think about how Isaiah 5, he was looking at his people and said, We live in a country where good is called evil, and evil is called good. We don't decide what's good and evil. There is absolute truth. But I think about how sometimes even professing Christians look at this issue and treat it with relativism. I know one person who looks at this issue of abortion and says, we should not outlaw it because in doing so, we will create a cast of criminals. Now my understanding of absolute truth is that sin is sin, whether we call it sin or not. Just as this earth revolved around the sun long before Galileo said, it was so. And while we need to share the gospel and mercy and help for women at that crossroads, we must not compromise the truth that murder is murder. Whether our society calls it that or not. I think about Proverbs 24:10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? We must stand with Those in need and the moral issues of our day. But I think about an even deeper identification. Are we willing to identify ourselves openly and boldly with Jesus Christ, no matter what it costs? In his death, in his resurrection, and in his victory. Will we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ? If you struggle with that question, you ponder what might that cost in years to come, I think it helps to ponder how far he came to identify with us. He left his throne in heaven to become the God-man. You think about him at the River Jordan with John the Baptist. John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Did Jesus have anything in the world to repent of? No. Why did he go through that? To identify with you and me. And eventually he would take our sins upon himself. Suffer the wrath of his father. Say it is finished. It is paid for. Will we identify with him? If we do, we're going to walk in his footsteps. And one of the things he did in identifying with the human race, he became, what, a friend of sinners. He sat with people that shocked the Pharisees. If we identify ourselves with Jesus and walk in his path, we will identify with sinners. We will be friend of sinners. Not that we join in the wrongdoing, but we will build relationships with them to tell them the message of the cross of the Savior who brought us. Eternal life. As I close, I want to share a story from World War II. Of a couple students in college. They were brothers and sisters. The year was 1943. Maybe you've heard the names Sophie and Hans Scholl. They went to the University of Munich. And they were willing to identify themselves with those in need of protection in the world. They started a movement you may have heard of called the White Rose Movement. They they published pamphlets against the horrors that the Nazis were wreaking on the world, particularly the destruction of the Jewish people. And they 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 shared them on college campus and beyond. They got to their sixth publication and they went to the the college campus one Sunday morning, and they went up on a balcony, waited till all the other students were in their classes, and they dropped their pamphlet off the balcony to the the floor below so that the students could pick them up as they came out. One janitor saw them, found out what they were up to, and reported them. They were taken immediately to trial and, of course, found guilty. Sentence execution. Now, most cases, prisoners in that situation were not allowed to see anyone. There was an exception in their rule, they were allowed to see their father. It's told us that he, he told both of those college students, his his children, I'm so proud of you. It's told us that even the guards in their prison said they bore themselves with with marvelous bravery. And they gave their lives that day. And I asked the question, what in the world would give them that kind of courage to identify with the Jews in harm's way? And the answer is exactly what I was just talking about. Both of them had identified themselves with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection and victory over the world. You say, how do we know that? Well, her last words before her execution were said to be, God, you are my refuge into eternity. The last words of Hans were, long live freedom. Her favorite Bible verse was James one twenty two, be doers of the word and not hearers only. But I want you to hear a couple more words written or spoken by her before she passed she said i will cling to the rope god has thrown me in jesus christ even when my numb hands can no longer feel it words of faith one more she wrote isn't it a riddle and awe-inspiring that everything is so beautiful despite the horror Lately, I've noticed something grand and mysterious peering through my sheer joy in all that is beautiful, a sense of its creator. Think of that. It's hard to imagine a darker time in history, and yet she's looking at the beauty of the creator and his creation. And she goes on. She says, only man can be truly ugly because he has the free will to estrange himself from this song of praise. It often seems that man will manage to drown out this hymn with his cannon thunder, his curses and blasphemy. But during this past spring, it has dawned upon me that man will not be able to do this. She closes with this, she says, and so I want to try and throw myself on the side of the victor. Will we, too, identify ourselves with Jesus Christ in his death, his resurrection, in our obedience, and his victory? I want to close this morning with a poem It speaks of Babylon. Throughout the Bible, Babylon was both the literal and symbolic center of man's man-made religion and idolatry, his rebellion against God. I invite you to just close your eyes, ponder the truths here. Many of them come straight from the book of Revelation. Babylon still babbles on, but do not cling to Babylon, for Babylon will fall. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. It is he who loves us and died to free us from our sins by his blood. He is the living one who died and is alive forevermore. He holds the keys of death and Hades, cling to Jesus and his father, for he is the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Father, I thank you so much again for this little book of Esther. We think of those Jews in the middle of harm's way and we look at our own lives and, and we realize that we live in the same fallen world. Probably ask some of the same questions, have some of the same wonderings about what you're up to that some of them had at those moments. And yet your word assures us through this little historical account that you are in control. You are the hand in the glove of human happenings. And that in the end, all will be made right. And even in the middle of it, you are victorious. So help us in this room to identify with you, the victor by faith through Jesus Christ. Maybe there's somebody here that needs to do that the first time this morning. Draw them to the cross. Maybe there's some of us who have been walking with you for years and we've forgotten that. That you are sovereign. That Satan is by no means your equal. They need their peace restored this morning, their faith and courage to follow you, wherever it may lead, knowing that walking with you leads to victory. Lord, I pray that as we take our offering today, you would help us to use it to further the message of that hope, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who gave his life for the sins of the world Rose again, the conqueror of death, our King of kings, our Lord of lords, far above all rule and authority and power, before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. It's in his name we pray.